Welcome to episode 238 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we have as our featured guest, Carol Cunningham. She is the queen bee of the anti-gerrymandering movement in Pennsylvania, as well as a big player nationally, too. She's co-written several, a couple of bills at the state level, Pennsylvania state level, to uh, dismantle the the uh, tendency for legislatures to gerrymander. She talks to us about what gerrymandering is, a little bit about its history. Uh, she also discusses what her strategy and her colleague's strategy is to get rid of gerrymandering, its negative effects on democracy, uh, who's more involved, which party, the Republicans or the Dems, and uh, prospects for 2018 and several other related subject areas. A fascinating, very, very informed discussion with Carol Cunningham, a true patriot in my estimation. We also have an EW essay by yours truly entitled Expectation, a poem titled Barroom, and another wonderfully written and beautifully read original piece by our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare, titled Flickers. And, of course, as is always the case, this is surrounded and fused with several great tunes. Thanks for being here. Let's get to it. Episode 238 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Them up. You got the set up. 
The sunbird squalor sets well with my ownery discontent. All happiness does clearly circumvent the tantalizing tokens and totems of a life's best, most deeply rooted intent. Is this just another of the billions, the quadrillions? of sad stories lived and not truly told? Most likely not worthy of a page or microphone, a stage or diner booth with saucer cup and coffee spoon. Just another wayward loon seeking a home and a gold-plated embossed fancy spittoon. A bit of status for the parents' expectation. Now those have become yours. And to the heartfelt empty soul blues. Because you are chasing nothing but the fear that you might in this place have arrived destined to lose. Too goddamn cowardly and selfish to choose. And all that is bluster, is tired and utterly confused. Maybe as we gaze at it all and ourselves, we should be a tad more amused. No one likes us, I don't know why. We may not be perfect, but heaven knows we try But all around, even our old friends put us down Let's drop the big one and see what happens We give them money, but are they grateful? No, they're spiteful and they're hateful They don't respect us, so let's surprise them Drop the big one, pulverized. The Asia's crowded, Europe's too old, Africa's far too hot, and Canada's too cold. And South America stole our name. Let's drop the big one, there'll be no one left to blame us. We'll save Australia. Don't wanna hurt no kangaroo We'll build an all-American amusement park there 
they got surfing too. Hello, Carol, is that you? Yes, it is. And it's E.W. Conundrum here from Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Thanks for being on the program. Thank you for having me. Now, before we get started, we're going to talk about gerrymandering in particular, but before we get started, I'd like to share a little background information with the folks listening, if you don't mind. Sure. Carol Cunningham is chair and co-founder of Fair Districts PA. She is also vice president of government and social policy on the state board of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. She received a PhD in literature from the University of Pennsylvania, worked for over a decade as youth pastor at Church of the Good Samaritan in Paoli, and lives in Exton with her husband, Whitney. She has explained gerrymandering and redistricting reform to audiences across the state, and she has explained gerrymandering. Oh, it's written there twice, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm being redundant already. Didn't even get started in the conversation. A little foreshadowing, I'm sure. Anyhow, she has explained gerrymandering and redistricting reform to audiences across the state and has been a guest on Pennsylvania Newsmaker with Terry Madonna, NPR's Radio Times with Marty Moss-Cohen, and Smart Talk with Scott Lamar on WITF. Carol was also part of the team of advocates, legislators, and policy staff that drafted Senate Bill 22 and House Bill 722. Carol, so nice to have you on the program, and, uh, you know, let's get right into it. Um, Why don't you tell us, I mean, you're obviously an expert, and you've done a lot of work not only in the legislative branch, but also in the field. So tell us, what, what is gerrymandering and why are you so against it? Gerrymandering is the manipulation of district electoral maps for partisan or personal advantage. So every 10 years, all of our electoral district maps are redrawn after the reapportionment that happens. There's a national census on every year that ends in zero. And then after that, the uh, congressional districts are divided up according to population. Pennsylvania tends to lose a seat in each redistrict reapportionment process. So we end up with one seat less. And then the congressional and legislative uh, districts need to be redrawn. And um, in the process, In Pennsylvania, the legislative leadership are the ones who draw the lines, and they are able to draw the lines in ways that allow them to have advantage, and that's gerrymandering. Nicely. Nicely explained. Very clear. And uh, we have been experiencing gerrymandering for how long, would you say, in in, uh, this country? Well, the the term was begun in 1812 with Governor uh, Gary of Massachusetts. He approved a map 
that the papers look, said looked like a salamander. So they came up with the term the gerrymander or the gerrymander, if you're going to pronounce it the way that some people say it should be pronounced. So that goes back to 1812. The difference recently is, is technology. So now we have all sorts of amazing mapping capabilities that were not envisioned you know, 20 years ago even. They used to do gerrymandering with thumbtacks and pencils. You'd put a thumbtack in the places where you want your, there's where your legislator is that you want to have reelected. You put an X in the places where you have a legislator you want to get rid of because he's voted for bills that you don't like or he's been pushing for reform in unpleasant ways or his, you know, he's been dating somebody's sister and people are angry about it. There's all sorts of crazy stories about why people get X'd off the map. But it all used to be done with pen and paper and pencil. Um, and now it's all done with computers. So if you think about the mapping technology we have and then data, data capture technologies, you know, all sorts of information is known about all of us, what our education is, what our income is, uh, every precinct, you know, what the what the margin of voter turnout is, what the margin of victory for each elected official. So with all of that information, it's incredibly easy to program in what you might want and then hit a button and you can predict the outcome of the election and carve up the districts with incredible precision. So if you look at the way they've been carved up, they get more and more strange. The last time in 2011 was just out of control. Uh, districts that had always been kind of one area, Monroe, uh, the Monroe Valley, the Lehigh Valley, um, Lehigh Valley with several counties there. Lehigh Valley had always been one district. It was carved up into a number of districts. Or Erie. Erie had always been one district. Now it's carved into two. Montgomery County is carved into five districts. So the last time around, it got much stranger, much more contorted, and much more control over how the how the votes turn out. Well, let me ask you, uh, is it illegal? Is gerrymandering or gerrymandering illegal? No, it's completely, it's completely legal. And in fact, I was stunned to find, I found a, um, a Wall Street Journal article by Carl Rove from 2010 that said, he who controls the mapping process can control Congress. Put it right out there in the Wall Street Journal. The first paragraph, it starts in Pennsylvania in 2001. And then it goes on to describe how in Pennsylvania in 2001, the Republicans had very effectively gerrymandered to capture additional seats that by numbers they would not have. And so the article basically described the plan, Red Map 2010, for the Republicans to put millions of dollars into state legislative races to capture those legislatures to control the mapping process to control Congress. And it's all it's all on the internet. Look for Red Map 2010. When I came across that website, I was really surprised because I would have thought it was illegal or at least immoral or at least you'd be ashamed about doing it. Um, and it really is quite self-congratulatory that they were effectively able to, to capture the legislatures through redistricting and to control Congress um, very effectively. And in fact, um, the person who was in charge of that when asked where he got the best bang for his buck, he said, Pennsylvania, for sure. We're a great target for that because we're a large swing state and we have very bad campaign finance laws and it's completely legal. But you believe there's a problem with it. I, I'm, do you think it's unethical? Oh, absolutely. It's unethical. It undermines, it undermines the value of our vote. So everybody, whatever, whatever party you are, if, if the districts are carved up to ensure the outcome, and they are, 
So the outcome is de- decided before the primary and certainly before the general election. Um, if if that's the case, then all of our votes are are worthless. Basically, they don't they don't make a difference. Our votes don't count. And what that does is it is it undermines any sense of accountability that the legislator might have to the public. So the legislators, their loyalty is really to the leadership because the leaders are the ones who are drawing the maps. So if it's a question between having voters angry with the legislator or having leadership angry, they're much more likely to take uh, having the voters angry. They, they don't really need to listen to the voters. It's the person who draws the map that they need to answer to. And that, of course, undermines the integrity of our elections. It undermines the integrity of our represented democracy. It also creates gridlock. It creates a toxic environment in both Harrisburg and D.C. It makes it very, very difficult for good policy to be enacted. And that has a huge economic cost. So I would say it's immoral, but it's also economically foolish to run the government the way it's being run. And and this is happening. Uh, this happens uh, on the state and federal level. Is it this? Is it the same uh, gerrymandering that occurs uh, for both levels of government? Do, do you know? You know what I mean? They're different processes. So in, in each the the complicating thing. It's a it's a very complicated uh, topic. It goes deep into the weeds, and I think our leaders like it that way. Of course. So each state is done differently. Um, and in Pennsylvania, the congressional districts are done as a simple bill. So somebody hands lang- legislative language to our legislators, and they are told to vote. Last time around, many of them didn't really know what the maps were going to look like, the, the congressional district maps would be. And they were told by leaders in both parties to go ahead and vote for it. When they actually saw what they had voted for, many of them were embarrassed. Uh, they did not know that those districts were going to be so strange and so odd. And, and there was certainly some um, collusion. Uh, that's a legal word that I probably shouldn't use. But there were certainly some, some winks and handshakes behind closed doors between leadership on both sides to protect the people that they wanted to protect and to create those districts. Um, so that's done as a bill. It's simply voted on and passed as a bill, and then the governor approves it. The state legislative districts are done differently. That's a five-person commission. Each of the party leaders in each house chooses one person. And then if those four can't agree on a fifth person, then the state Supreme Court chooses that fifth person. So last time around, it was the Republicans who had control over that commission, and they did a great job of ensuring uh, victory for the Republicans in the state, House, and Senate. This next time, that is likely to be a, a Democratic uh, commission because the state Supreme Court right now leans heavily Democratic. So the fifth person will probably be chosen um, will probably be a Democrat. And so we've been talking to Republican legislators and suggesting they have the opportunity to fix this before that happens. Some of them understand that. They look at it and they say, ah, yes, that would be bad. And they are strongly in support of fixing the rules. Others somehow believe that that won't really happen, that they will still be able to manage the process themselves. Um, we think they're being short-sighted. And we, we don't want to see it gerrymandered in the opposite direction. We want to see it done properly, and we want to see fair districts for everybody. So when the Republicans are looking at it and saying that would be bad, they mean, they're, they're thinking it would be bad if the Democrats now are in control of the gerrymandering. Yeah, yeah. And, and there are certainly Democrats who are very excited and very eager to have that happen. A- another factor in this is a very interesting time. There's a lot of unexpected factors right now. The, the Republicans had been pushing for downsizing the legislature, going from 203 to 150 
House districts. Mm-hmm. Um, they pushed that amendment through in the last session. They've been a little reluctant to push it through in this session, and I think partly because if you look at who's going to be drawing those, uh, it would be a Democrat um, and or a Democratic commission. And who wants to go from 203 seats down to 150? And it's the Democrats who are drawing the those districts off the map. Um, so we suggest to everybody we would all be better served, the legislators, and certainly the people of Pennsylvania would be better served if it was an impartial process. Yes, for certain. Uh, as you said before, it really jeopardizes, undermines the integrity of the whole notion of democracy. Now, I, I want to ask you on a national level, and I know it seems to me you're, you're an expert nationally and uh, statewide, probably more involved in state because you probably can do more w- within your own state. Uh, but nationally, who's and, and statewide, who who's worse the, the, at gerrymandering or with gerrymandering, the Democrats or the Republicans? I know they both do it, but who who takes it to the greatest extreme in your opinion? Is that easy to answer? Well, certainly by any measure, the last time around, the Republicans put a plan together that they called Red Map 2010. They put, I think, $12 million into it. And their thought was you target uh, state legislatures, those those small races, and you capture those state legislatures. And then you, you can get seats in Congress easily simply by gerrymandering those maps. So there's a study called Extreme Maps done by the Brennan Center for Justice and they, they make pretty clear the Republicans won the game the last time around. That doesn't mean they're going to win the game the next time around. Um, we know for sure that they are already planning for 2020. They have a website called Red Map 2020. And the Democrats have actually three, at the last count, they had three different initiatives going. One is called Advantage 2020. If you look at their website, the graphic on that website is a map of our Congressional District 7 which is is one of the worst gerrymandered districts in the country. But Advantage 2020 has, you know, Pennsylvania's district on its uh, homepage. And then they have something called Unrig the Map, which is they're looking at governor's races and the impact those have on the process. And then there's something called the Democratic, uh, the National Democratic Redistricting Commission. Um, and that's the initiative that President Obama and Eric Holder are involved in. So they have at least three three initiatives going to try to flip the maps in the other direction the next time around. So I would say, yes, the Republicans did a a phenomenal job last time, and they were very, very proud of themselves. Uh, That advantage, I think, is is not necessarily going to hold. They they do have a good advantage because they do have those legislatures right now. But there's a lot of money that's going to be going into changing this. There's a book called... um, there's a book by David Daly called Rat Fucked, um, and I don't know if I'm allowed to say that title on your sure you are on your um, podcast. But, it's apropos, uh, yes. Yeah. So, so what that means is it's a dirty deal done cheap, and David Daly describes in great detail how how the work of of Red Map 2010 was done in particular places. He has two chapters in his book on Pennsylvania. The the first chapter about a state is Pennsylvania, and then there's another chapter about Pennsylvania, and he describes the really toxic impact of this outside money coming into small state legislative races, targeting people that might be well-liked, that might be good legislators, but finding the one thing you could say about that person that would force people to vote the other way. And and that's exactly what happened. So we are guaranteed, if we don't fix this, in the years leading up to the next redistricting, we will have more and more outside money from both sides flowing into Pennsylvania, trying to flip 
our legislative districts in order to control the process, in order to control Congress. And it's toxic. Uh, it's destructive of democracy. And if I was a legislator, I would want to make sure that that is not the way the, the thing plays out in the future. So you're saying that gerrymandering would strengthen outside influences in, ra- in, in statewide races, local races. Absolutely. So the, the loyalty is to the outside. If you, if you look at the kind of money that comes into Pennsylvania, it tends to go to legislative leaders. There's, I was told, 200 shale gas lobbyists in, in Harrisburg, um, and they are not whining and dining your average rank-and-file legislator. They're, they're talking to the leadership, and the leadership is, is um, setting the agenda based on that, not based on what the average Pennsylvanian wants. So if you look at polls, there are many things that Pennsylvanians agree on that we would like to see happen. Uh, those things don't happen. Um, they're often not even on the table. They're not on the agenda. They're not considered. Um, and really, it's the outside influences that want to control Congress, not so much control Pennsylvania as control Congress, that is setting the agenda for the whole thing. There's two really important studies that came out just this week. One was by um, Michael Porter and Catherine Gale um, from the Harvard Competitiveness Project. And it's called Why Competition in the politics industry is failing America. And they look in detail at what they call the duopoly, which is the, um, the, the political industrial complex of legislators, lobbyists, special interests. And they talk about the way that that industry controls the rules of competition and basically shuts out the average voter's voice. They say that the average American appears to have only a minuscule, near-zero, statistically non-significant impact on public policy. And they basically describe the way that this, this um, system, which is held in place by gerrymandering and, and certain campaign finance issues, um, has put people at each other in a way that is divisive and unproductive. And they talk about the way this harms the economy. So they're coming at it from a completely economic point of view. They're wondering why, why is the American economy not rebounding the way that it ought to? And their conclusion is that partisan competition um, ensures that good policy is not enacted and it misleads voters about what the agenda is for our legislators. That's one. The other one that I think ties in really closely is from Pennsylvania. It was done by the Economy League. It just came out this week. It's called Communities in Crisis, the Truth and Consequences of Municipal Fiscal Distress in Pennsylvania. It talks about the way that our states, our our cities and municipalities are not doing well financially. It talks about the fact that that 10 years ago, the Economy League urged our state legislature to address issues that are hampering the economic growth of our municipalities. And they basically say none of those things were enacted. None of the changes that they recommended were were even heard, were brought forward. And, and when you look at the way our gerrymandering is done, you can see exactly what's happened. Our townships, our cities are cracked out. That's a way of describing the way the lines are drawn, so that rather than a township having its own state senator or its own house representative, it's divided up into the surrounding communities. And so what would in many cases be a strong democratic um, 
entity becomes broken out into surrounding Republican entities. And, and I'm not interested in whether it's Republican or Democrat. What I'm interested in is the fact that there is nobody who is representing that community. That's not the focus of their interest. And so if you talk to mayors from, from small cities around Pennsylvania, they'll say there are good solutions that would make uh, our small cities much more economically viable. There's nobody bringing those forward in Harrisburg. And even if they do bring them forward in Harrisburg, they're not going to get a hearing and they're certainly not going to get enacted. Right, because, it's a huge economic cost. And, and, and again, because it's all about pleasing the leadership and the leadership wants to please the big money interests uh, and not the voters because yeah. they don't need to worry about the voters because gerrymandering protects them. From, exactly. From any, yep. Yeah. So yeah, it's it, it is pretty despicable, and and the fact that people are proud of themselves when they politicians are proud of themselves when they win that that game, which uh, really does not lead to anything good in terms of democracy and solving our problems, as you just put it very very uh, clearly. I, again, I appreciate it, uh, Carol Cunningham. I think I'm saying that right. Yep, that's good. Yeah, it's a beautiful name, and. Uh, you're doing wonderful work. You really are. I mean, I'm I'm overwhelmed with how much energy and knowledge you have, and it also gives me it, it's heartening. It gives me a little bit of peace of mind that we have people such as yourself doing the kind of work and being on top of these issues in in such an you know an incredibly uh, thorough manner. So thank you up front. Um, and what's your strategy? How do you handle this now? So we are supporting um, two bills. In the last session, we spent some time studying the bills. That there, there's, there's quite a few legislators who know the system is broken and who want to see it fixed. So in the last session, there were quite a few bills that had been put forward. We studied them. We identified one in particular that we thought was really an effective way to go forward. Uh, the bills didn't get anywhere in the last session. There was not much interest um, from the public and certainly not from the leadership. Um, but last December... There was a group convened of legislative, um, le the, the past supporters of those bills um, in the legislation, um, some staffers, and then five advocate members. I was one of those. There was somebody from the Public Interest Law Center who basically took the bills that had been interest, introduced last time, sat down, kind of took them apart, looked at what worked, looked at the feedback that we'd had, looked at um, there was a change enacted in California, another enacted in Arizona and looked at how it's done in other places effectively, and then basically drafted a bill, Senate Bill 22, which was introduced in January by Senator Lisa Bascola. It would, in, it would amend the state constitution to create an independent redistricting commission, um, which would be four members of each of the major parties and then three people who would be not affiliated with e either major party, so they could be independent or third party. And none of them would be allowed to be um, elected officials or lobbyists or married to elected officials. There's a lot of prohibitions about who those people could be. And then, and then they would be randomly selected from pools. Uh, the, they would have to agree um, with at least one person from each of those groups on maps that they would approve. And in the process, they would not be allowed to use the kind of partisan information that's currently used. They would just have have census data and maps, and they would have 
opportunities for public input. So communities could say, you know, we want the Lehigh Valley to be treated as one entity, or we don't want to be divided by this river because there's no bridges across and we can't get to the district office. Um, there'd be opportunities for public input, opportunities for public feedback. So we've had this bill looked at by quite a few legislators. It's interesting. We'll have legislators say, oh, that will never work. How would it, you know, how could it be impartial? And then when we sit down and go through the bill with them, many of them have said, yeah, this looks really good. This, this, you know, there might be a few things we would tweak, but but we like the way this works. So um, Senate Bill 22, uh, then Representative Steve Samuelson introduced a identical bill, House Bill 722. So both of those bills are in their rep- their respective um, houses. House Bill 722 has 96 co-sponsors, so it's the second most co-sponsored bill in this session. The other one is a farm bill, um, and so it's got a lot of bipartisan support. Um, so we're, we're excited about that. Both of them are waiting to be heard in committee, and um, pretty much uh, that's a problem in our Pennsylvania legislature because the committee chairs have complete control over what gets heard in committee, and right now both committee chairs are, are saying they're not going to hear the bills, but we're working on that. And uh, are they Republicans or Democrats? They are. Oh. All, all committee chairs, all committee chairs in, the, in Harrisburg are Republicans. And every committee chair, the committee chairs are chosen by seniority, not by expertise or by diligence or by respect from their colleagues. It's seniority. And, um, and they, are, uh, they have complete control over what gets heard in their, in their committees. I mean, there's, the more we get to know what's going on in Harrisburg, the more we see the depth of the dysfunction. <laughs> and legislators will tell us it, it was not always like this. It used to be that um, the committees would agree together on what would move forward. Or it used to be that you know, there, there, there were ways that it used to function better. I was in Harrisburg on Tuesday. There was a press, we did a press conference asking to have hearings for both these bills. And quite a few legislators stopped me in the hall from both parties, stopped me in the hall and said, you have no idea how bad it is. Um, they're very, very unhappy about the, the way the budget impasse is unfolding. They feel like the average legislator has no say in anything. Um, and, and they feel like there's an extreme dysfunction that has gotten worse year by year. And they would love, many of them would love to see this change take place because they think it would open the door to a more functional representative democracy. But, but right now, getting this through is a, is a big challenge, and we're still trying to figure out how to do that. And again, it's because the uh, political officials, representatives, do not have to really worry about the uh, interests of the people because of, of, of their safe districts. Well, and the leadership in particular, because if you think about it, the leaders are the ones who, who have the control to draw the way they want to draw. So they draw themselves very safe districts, but they also have a lot of money behind them. Mm-hmm. So if it comes down to, you know, someone's going to try to compete against one of those people, they can easily hang on to their seat by, by throwing money into the election and controlling the narrative. So the legislative leaders in particular are not very worried about what their constituents have to say, to the extent that we have had many of our volunteers who are constituents of those leaders trying to arrange meetings and in some cases, they don't even get a call back. I have one. I have one volunteer who has called a leader's office five times now, and has has got no response. And and basically, she's been saying to the people she talks to, if you were a business, you would be fired. Right. And the person says, "Thank you for your call. I'll pass that on." And um, there's no meeting scheduled, and there's no real response. It's it's um, 
it's discour it's discouraging it's disturbing and that's the system we currently have and uh the prospects for for uh, 2018 you know the midterm electric elections uh in terms of eradicating some of the problems with gerrymandering well so the 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 bills that we're putting forward are constitutional amendments. That means they have to pass in two consecutive legislative sessions, and then they have to go to public referendum. So it's a very, as I've been told, it's a very heavy lift. Um, I was actually told when we started in January 2016 that it was impossible. I was told by people in Pennsylvania and, and election reform experts around the country, you know, we'd have these great conversations about, okay, what's the best way to fix gerrymandering, independent commissions, how should they work, you know, really good conversations. And then there'd be this pause and they'd say, oh, but you're in Pennsylvania. And I'd say, yeah. And they'd say, well, you're not going to be able to do this. And I'd say, and why would that be? And they'd say, you don't have initiative and referendum. And I'd say, but there's certainly other ways to reform things. And they'd say, your leadership will never give up control, and your public will never pay attention. So that was, I was told some version of that by many, many people. Your leadership will never give up control, and your public will never pay attention. The truth is, um, yes, the leadership will not give up control, but since last fall, we have seen a huge explosion of public interest in how our elections work, in why our votes are not counting, um, people started contacting me last October, interestingly enough, to say, I've been trying to understand what's going on, and I think this might be part of the problem, and how can I help you? So we've gone, last year we had, at this time last year, I think I had three volunteers. By January, I think I was up to 14, and now we have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers across the state. We've had more than, uh, I think we're up to 220 public meetings we've had since the first of the year. We've had more than 14,000 people attend We've put 35 local groups in place in counties across the state. We've been pushing resolutions in municipalities and counties. I think we're over 100 municipal resolutions and 12 county resolutions in support of these bills. So our goal is to educate the public and then to get the public to show up for primaries and for the general election and to make this an election issue so that... So that the, the legislators who are not supportive know we're going to be looking at your vote on this or your support on this, and we're going to be voting on that issue in the, in the elections. Well, I have to say, Carol, you've uh, proven to me that you're a patriot. And I, I, <laughs> again, I, I really appreciate it. Carol Cunningham, she is a co-founder of Fair Districts PA and Vice President of Government and Social Policy on the State Board of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania and working to fix the problem that we call gerrymandering. Now, and before I go, let me just say our sure. website, fairdistrictspa.com. Uh, please go to fairdistrictspa.com. All this information is there. We have a really excellent page that shows maps, and you can zoom in on your own state legislative or Senate maps and see what was done. Um, and once people look at those, they realize what's what's happening, and they uh, they want to help change it. So fairdistrictspa.com, spend some time there, and then join us. Sounds good. Thank you for sharing that information, and hopefully we could talk again and, and hear about all of the progress you've made. Thank you for having me. Take care. Take care. Dragons to stay 
and every day Each and every day Dragons to slay I work when I'm out of play Dragons to the left Dragons to the right Nothing stop me and my baby From going out tonight Demons on the slide Gonna make a try Coming in by dragonfly I believe it When I see that thing Oh, I won't leave it We've got some dragons to slay Dragons to slay And every day, each and every day, dragons to slay. I'm working when I'm out of play. Dragon the white salmon, industry system, going wild, Harry Ice, people are lying down. Why a white man? No food, Hell no shit, call the fire. It's a killer. downtown and neighborhood movie theaters are long gone from our depressed former coal town. They've been bulldozed or gutted or renovated and turned into offices, restaurants, banks, bingo halls, or parking lots. They follow the vaudeville houses before them into oblivion. And although a marquee or two still stands, someone walking by a bank, say, would never know that Clark Gable and Carol Lombard once frolicked there or that anxious, awkward teens, now dead or in nursing homes, made out in the balcony beneath the impassive gaze of a bored usher. The downtown theaters were a short walk over a bridge from my house, and my friends and I would head to the movies every weekend during the school year and every chance we got during the summer, 
watching cops and killers and cowboys and Indians and soldiers and swingers flicker on screens. At the time, there were three theaters downtown, the Comerford, the Center, and the Strand. Two of them were old-time movie palaces, while the Center was a smaller, shabbier venue. The Center and the Strand are gone. Banks now. And the Comerford has come through various incarnations with its marquee intact, now advertising a farm-to-table restaurant, the latest in a string of tenants in the multi-use building. At the Comerford, I saw marathon showings of the James Bond and the Planet of the Apes series, emerging bleary-eyed with a popcorn and goober buzz, visions of vixens and villains and gorillas on horseback, and Charlton Heston and his mute, scantily clad companion Nova lodged in my head forever. At the Strand, I saw Cabaret and encountered a louche and exciting musical version of Weimar Germany, with Liza as hapless Sally Bowles and Joel Grey as the decadent MC under the sleazy and expert eye of director Bob Fosse. I saw a slew of John Wayne movies. He was one of my favorites. I watched him triumph in True Grit, taking the reins of his horse in his teeth and shooting with both hands in the climactic showdown with his nemesis, played by a mid-career Robert Duvall, after Boo Radley, but before Tom Hagen. I watched the Duke die, tears streaming down my cheeks, at the hands of the vicious, psychotic Bruce Dern in The Cowboys. I was too young to get in the R-rated Godfather, a daily source of pain to me, and I lingered under the Strand's marquee, memorizing the lobby cards and cursing my youth. Even my Aunt Jewel, not a cinephile by a long shot, managed to see it. The horse's head scene scared the hell out of her. And my brother-in-law tortured me, as was his wont, by telling me about the one nude scene where Apollonia, Michael's doomed Sicilian bride, reveals her breasts on their wedding night. In those days, if I couldn't see a movie because of the rating, I read the parodies in Mad Magazine. That's how I first discovered Midnight Cowboy. Or read movie mags that had excerpts or summaries of the film scripts and stills. Or read profiles in the slick general interest mags that my mother subscribed to. I still remember Shana Alexander's profile of the enigmatic and interview-hating Marlon Brando in Life. Downtown theaters were just beginning to shudder as multiplexes were built in the malls that are shuddering today. The center, where our hometown hero, Jason Miller, appeared on the screen as Father Karras in The Exorcist, converted for a while to a porn house, as did another theater, the Roosevelt, in the shanty section of a lace curtain neighborhood. With a strip club across the street, the center briefly anchored our town's shabby Times Square. My friend worked as an usher there, and he sneaked me in so I could catch, among other lesser titles, Misty Beethoven, the classic porn interpretation of the Pygmalion myth with a twist. It was no My Fair Lady. In this version, the rain in Spain gave way to fellatio. With the same friend, 
I explored more porn at the Oak Hill Drive-In. If you drove to the exit of the wooded enclave of fleshly delights and turned off your lights, you could attempt to drive in the back way undetected. The depressed manager and indifferent ushers otherwise engaged at the concession stand or turning away lecherous underage teens like us at the front entrance. I remember one movie with a Vietnam vet having a flashback of torching a village with a Zippo lighter. I'm not sure how that scene fit in with the plot, such as it was, or with the sex. And another with a man in a cheap gorilla suit, a homage to King Kong, or Mighty Joe Young, perhaps. What did I learn at the movies? That war is hell, that martinis should be shaken, not stirred, that a cowboy, when pressed, has to bravely face his enemies and kill every last one of them, that you never tell anyone outside the family what you're thinking, that the devil is a foul-mouthed beast, that love is complicated, that ape must not kill ape, that life is a cabaret.
barroom. Loose stool falls to the floor. Wood on wood sound echoes across the dim-lighted barroom once more. Fresh drool, and she sings to herself a melody of momentary happiness. A scent of harvest moon incense traverses the air as several working-class gentlemen stare, cackle, and swear. A derivative of lost innocence. Episode 238 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, our featured guest this week, gerrymandering, or I should say anti-gerrymandering Queen Bee, Carol Cunningham. Thank you so much for all the important hard work you do. You are a patriot. I also would like to thank our associate producer and resident essayist, Dr. Michael Pavis, for another wonderful piece, a.k.a. Uncle Cesare. And I also would like to thank these musical artists. Django Reinhardt and Stefan Grappelli, LCD Sound System, Randy Newman, Garland Jeffries, 
Erland Oy, Elise Legros, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard too. Until next week, enjoy this one. Thanks for listening.